iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science to Pose platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Samantha Ward, who is a senior lecturer in animal science at Nottingham Trent University and manages the undergraduate bachelor degree course in zoo animal biology. Additionally, Sam is part of the EASA Records Working Group the research advisor for wild welfare and sits as the welfare expert on the zoo executive committee as part of DEFRA, advising the UK government on UK zoo matters. Lots of things going on. Welcome, Sam. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Sabrina. Yes, very much looking forward. So we always like to kick off a podcast with like a short story of you connecting perhaps like early story with an animal or anything else you'd like to share. Uh, yeah, okay. So I suppose from a young age, I've always um, had animals in my life. It's either been, you know, pets, and it, I suppose it started off with hamsters as the easiest, not so easy um, pet to have. Um, and then the most common, I suppose, rabbits, guinea pigs, and so on and so forth. Um, we had, well, I was quite lucky as a child, and we had um, quite a big garden. So we were able to then get some chickens, which um, I then started to kind of realize how much I enjoyed having sort of these sorts of animals around the garden. Um, and we then had a, a pet goat um, of which I, I actually entered my pet goat in a, in a running race um, in, my, in my hometown. And uh, the, the race got, um, sorry, the goat got a, a mention in the local newspaper as one of the best, uh, best runners. Um, so yeah, I started off as a child really loving um, having animals, looking after them. And it was always kind of down to me to, to you know, look after them in terms of feeding and cleaning them out, and you know, providing them with the care and things. So I think that's where it initially started. And then I think when you start to grow up a little bit, you're kind of like, oh, I just don't know where I want to go and what I want to do. But I still always had this this love of animals. So I decided I'd do a, a zoology degree, um, and then I moved on from there and started working within zoos um, down at Paynton Zoo down in Devon. Um, and that, I think, was where I then started to really recognise that it was the zoo animal world that I really kind of connected with. Um, and I started working with rhinos in that uh, particular instance. Um, and so, yeah, hoofstock became my my love. And I think, again, it, it was probably a connection from working with the goat, uh, running with the goat and then, you know, moving across into more exotic species. So, yeah, I suppose that's my my initial animal connection story. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So I love how you also mentioned like, you know, hamster easy, but not so easy, you know, often, yeah. you know, these animals that end up in lots of people's homes, but actually are a lot more complex and, uh, you know, 
looking at that and uh, and you with the goat it, it, I have to think back at now the book that you and your co-authors released last year on animal learning and training you know this kind of already interacting and, and training or learning together uh, and uh, and making the note the local newspaper that's pretty cool so uh, <laughs> yeah I, I still have the picture from my mom uh, downloaded it or got it from their newspaper when they did a release so I still got the picture of Fudge the goat running with this little number on the front of his collar <laughs> oh that's really wonderful so could you talk to us like a lot of people who are listening to the podcast they are interested in uh, most people who have been speaking onto the podcast, they had a love of animals or connection to animals. Very few didn't. But for a lot of them, perhaps the first thing that came to mind was maybe, you know, veterinary studies or you already mentioned you started working at a zoo and working with rhinos. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your study and background and, um, and how that kind of bridged also in, in your work with zoo animal welfare? Yeah, definitely. So I suppose as a as a child, the go to career, if you say that you're interested in animals is veterinary. Um, and I suppose, you know, initially, when you don't really know what else is out there, you kind of go down that route of, yeah, okay, I'll be a vet. But the more I was, you know, I did work experience in vets, and I just, it just wasn't something that really struck me. And I started to realize that I didn't want to work with poorly animals and annoying owners I wanted to work with the healthy animals and you know making sure that we could do the right you know do right by them and, and look after them properly so I think that was um, quite an early recognition for me that I didn't really want to go down the animal health route um, so yeah my placement involved um, working with uh, Dr Vicky Mel oh Professor Vic Vicky Melfi now um, who's at Hartbury University and her, the projects I had a variety of different projects, um, but the one that really stuck to, to mind was working with the rhinos, um, looking at stockmanship. Um, and it was a really interesting project because it was something that had no one had really in, looked into before within the zoo components. So it's a lot of work had been investigated within uh, farm animal welfare uh, research. So looking at how, um, you know, pig handlers or cattle farmers and how they, if they interact in a positive way with the animals, um, then it had a positive impact on productivity levels. Um, and no one had really looked at this in, in zoo animals before. And I think mainly because you don't really have productivity levels in zoo animals. So it was a bit of a strange concept. And how could we measure, you know, whether it was a positive interaction or, or what was going on? So we started to look at it with regards to relation to um, behaviour uh, and potentially linking that into welfare. So that's where my initial sort of very beginning studies started. Um, and I then went on to do um, a master's project uh, of a similar kind of study, um, looking into stockmanship of a variety of different species. So that was in, then included Sulawesi macaques and uh, Chapman zebra. So I started to kind of get into this human animal interaction world um, through that area really, in that area of research. And in between, I suppose, my sort of academic studies, I then worked as a zookeeper and had worked, you know, with, again, mostly hoofstock species, but then also, you know, kangaroos um, and uh, lots of different primates. And again, started to recognize, you know, that different keepers would get different response rates from animals. 
um, the animals would respond very differently to different keepers. And that was something as a keeper, you kind of, you know, like, oh, yes, well, he works very well with me. Uh, he loves me. And you kind of take that, you know, quite personally. Um, but I then started to really get interested into the more scientific justification behind it, whether there was one, I suppose, is the other aspect. And so that's when I went um, and did sort of further research into my master's and, and then, yeah, behaviour and welfare research as a PhD as well. Wonderful. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what do we mean when we say stockmanship? What, where does that term come from? I mean, you already kind of alluded to the farm animal, but tell us more about what stockmanship is for those listening who don't know it. Yeah, I, I suppose, to be honest, it, it's probably should be now more related to stock personship. Um, I don't know if that's an, now an official term, but it's certainly, you know, trying to bridge the gap between between genders. Um, but generally, it's basically the way that you would be looking after and caring for your animals. So it's linked to animal husbandry. Um, but it's more than just what you do. It's the I suppose the demeanor of how you're doing it as well. So if you're working around animals, are you quite calm? Are you collected? Are you um, quite smooth and gentle with the animals? Or are you kind of hurrying them along or rushing them in that sort of a component? Um, and certainly, like I say, with, with the farm animal research, that's where it really started um, with Paul Hemsworth over in Australia. Um, and then it's kind of developed on from there, really. Yes. And, and that's it's always really good to know where things also come from. Right. Like uh, and why sometimes in our quest to make things better for animals, that sometimes those sorts of economic argumentations on you know more milk better meat and all those sorts of things that often were related to this field uh, can sometimes help us shift in doing things differently for animals like saving time or you know and and not necessarily ne the, the first thing that for us comes to mind which is making it better for animals but sometimes we need other sorts um, so having that background also helps and I think it's also great that you highlight you know, when we think about what is it we we want to do, but also what we don't want to do. And, uh, you know, because that's, you know, if you're trying to figure out what sort of career you want, it's good to kind of, you know, try a lot of different things and think about, okay, I really want this and also excluding. Um, and I always feel, mm. you know, bad about, uh, bad for the vets, because especially because they're really often so busy that they don't necessarily have a lot of time to do the fun things uh, yes, animals, right? <laughs> yeah. so uh, it's always great I mean, yeah yeah if you're listening and you're working with vets make sure that they uh, you know get to connect with the animals or feed them or give them enrichment so uh, <laughs> they don't really, yeah. they get some fun time as well <laughs> yes absolutely for sure so and one of the things that really struck me as you were talking and it was one of the first things I learned when I started 30 years ago from my first boss, uh, Ron Casteline in the Netherlands, uh, was the how. So it was not just about, and that's been something that's been very important throughout my career. I'm really delighted that you talk about it now again. Uh, and I know that this is very much part of your work in philosophy is this, it's not just that we get things done, but it's very much looking at how do we get it done and how do you know the animals perceive it. So really focusing on that. So perhaps do you have some, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit to different topics, but do you have some examples of your own work on, on the how? 
Yeah, so I think, um, interestingly, when I first, I, I like to kind of, like you've just mentioned, I suppose, start at the fundamentals. I think that's a really important base. And unless we've got the baseline in, um, then it is really difficult to develop further on from that. So I suppose the, the example that I can think of off the top of my head here is, is thinking about the human-animal relationship. And I know that this is something that obviously you're quite invested into um, as well. And, and generally the idea that, you know, that a relationship is formed between an animal and a human based upon a series of interactions. And these interactions can shape what that relationship is going to be like. Um, and going from, again, I suppose, previous um, research, it was always the idea that a relationship is based upon perception. So you would measure what the human's perception of the animal's response is, and you would measure the animal's perception of what the human's response is. And I suppose when in various discussions kind of struck me that well, how on earth are we measuring the animal's perception of what the human is going to do? That just doesn't make any sense. So we started to kind of, you know, unpick um, the definitions of what is human-animal interactions and relationships and where do they differ and at what stage does an interaction become a relationship. Um, and we then published a paper, so it was with a research um, assistant of mine, uh, Frisha Patel. Um, and so we, yeah, we published a paper in Animal Welfare back in 2019 that started to kind of really investigate what is the definition of human-animal relationships within zoos and how are we actually going to measure it? Because unless we have that kind of fundamental baseline, we're just going to really struggle to be able to, to measure anything on top of that to make it sort of empirical examples. Yes, and perhaps can you talk to us a little bit more about there's lots of different ways of knowing uh, or thinking of no, that we know, or or how do we turn what we know into questions or into hypotheses, or you know the importance of this scientific approach, as you mentioned now. Yeah, so I think um, that's quite a that's quite a tough question, Sabrina. Um, I think certainly it starts off with curiosity, and that's definitely where I come in. Um, to my sort of understanding of, of the scientific principles behind it, relationships of, of humans and animals and, you know, zoo welfare and so on and so forth. And, and I think it's sometimes it's the questions that you just generally kind of pose to yourself as you're wandering around. Um, again, you know, certain things thinking about, you know, what is what are the fundamental reasons why on earth are animals interested in in connecting with us? Is it because they want food is it because they actually want a connection what is it that they're gaining from that and it's these sorts of questions that you kind of start to think about and go oh well, she's got no chance of answering that and then it's about sort of picking them apart little bit by little bit and going okay well actually we can do a motivation study we now know ways of being able to measure animal motivation um, within you know controlled settings and then it's about applying that within the zoo setting so we could potentially look at um, do giraffe feedings, for example, if we're setting up a giraffe feeding experiment to look at motivation, are they motivated to interact with a human, i.e. a visitor, or is it actually because they're feeding them with some browse that they don't get unless they're engaged in a, in a, in a visitor feeding experience? So we can start to, to set up these mini experiments to be able to tick off little questions as we go through, which then help to kind of fill up the bigger picture. Yes, wonderful. And it reminds me of um, work that I still would love to do and I still haven't 
had time to do it. And um, when I interviewed care staff for my masters, I was asking them of how do they know that their animals are doing well? And, you know, people, lots of people from different facilities working with marmosets were saying similar things, right? But um, if we look into the research, like data, uh, you know, peer reviewed papers, we don't necessarily have those sorts of questions actually then flushed out of like if people say, well, they look a certain way or their eyes are a certain way. We know that in certain animals and for pain or so. Uh, but it's then interesting to see like what sort of things do people working with animals know and use? And then how do we, you know, now ask uh, questions, right? By maybe making them look at pictures or so. It's really interesting, especially you having worked in zoos and with animals directly and now in your in your role um, at the university and managing PhD students and others. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. But before we jump into more zoo uh, work, and um, can you talk to us a little bit about squirrels and cats? <laughs> yes, I suppose I can. So um, this, the love of, uh, my love of red squirrels comes from uh, when I used to work up in the Lake District. So I worked a lot with um, a really good friend of mine um, who was unfortunately killed uh, at the zoo. Um, and unfortunately we did a huge amount of red squirrel conservation work um, together. And so it was kind of a bit of a plight that um, I shall continue on doing as much red squirrel conservation work as I possibly could so that we could try and save the red squirrel in the UK because it is quite uh, endangered. Although you get loads over in Europe uh, within our, our smaller population uh, in our on our little island, we don't have that many. Um, so yes, I have a PhD student who's looking at sort of um, urban populations with regards to red, red squirrels, and she's based um, in or, or based in Formby. Um, she's actually now working for the um, Scottish Red Squirrel Society group, uh, looking at conserving red squirrels up there. Um, so I like to think that we're we're still continuing on with Sarah's plight of of saving the red squirrel. Um, and certainly, I mean, yeah, that's a bit more of a, a sort of a, a strange story, I suppose. But with the cats, um, it's not something that I've really got a lot into in the past, if I'm honest. Um, I've normally tended to steer clear of domestic species um, just because I feel like the the influence of the, the human owner uh, and the epigenetic side of things is, is a massive sway of, of behavior. Um, but with um, with with Nottingham Trent University, we have a very small um, animal team that are able to supervise uh, PhD students. And uh, yes, it was a, a project that was kind of uh, passed on to me through uh, you know, various different situations. So she's looking at um, the welfare implications of various different management systems, which is where I kind of fit in with the topic, um, looking at whether you keep your cats indoors um, or allow them outdoors and whether they've got choice or enrichment provisions and things along those sorts of lines. So it's a really interesting study um, because it again involves a lot of kind of choice options and, and reasons why people keep cats indoors or outdoors and what their beliefs are with regards to, you know, the different management systems and whether they think it's safe because the tra road traffic is too busy and things along those sorts of lines. So I suppose, yeah, it's, they're very different topics uh, the conservation side of things and the, the domestic species side of things, but they all have a, a similar link in terms of the human component to management. 
Yes, absolutely. And and also thinking about, you know, the well-being of the individuals, right? Whether they are com- companion animals or, or wild animals. Uh, and as you know very well, it's more and more attention also to well-being of wild animals. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's exciting to have such a broad uh, perspective. And of course, beliefs uh, are something that is, as you know, also so across all the different fields as well right like uh, even like you talked about before like I believe this or I think this is better and and all turns back to the how and and so all those things connected yeah it's really interesting so before we dive into a little bit more of your research related and writing you uh, as I mentioned in the introduction you do uh, quite a bit of external work uh, beside the university that you are um, but so can you talk to us about you know, what does a zoo welfare specialist on the DEFRA Zoo Executive Committee do? Yeah, so that's something that, um, again, I suppose from working in the industry, it's um, an area that you want to feel like you're making a contribution in a positive way to making changes to, to a zoo industry if possible. And so essentially it started from working in various different uh, zoos, seeing things that worked really well, seeing things that didn't, and wanting to try and make a difference in terms of ensuring that legislation or certainly welfare for all zoo animals within the UK is is as good as it can possibly be um, at a legislative level. So I joined ZEC uh, trying to make sure that, uh, so ZEC is the, the acronym for Zoo Executive Committee. So I joined hoping to try and make a difference, as I imagine, you know, a lot of people working within animal welfare industries do. And yeah, so I suppose realistically, we go through, we're currently going through the um, Zoo Licensing Act, which is the legislation in the UK. So we're updating that um, and tying that into a document called the Secretary of State Standards for Modern Zoo Practice, which again is, is almost kind of a bullet point list Um, of what zoos have to do as a minimum standard to to get their zoo license within the UK. And so we're going through all of that and improving the standards and making zoos work that little bit harder just to make sure that the the animals are getting the really good care and welfare that they really need. Um, It's been a few years out of date. So with the developments of science and and certainly animal welfare research, we're now able to kind of push it a little bit further and, and increase the standards and the levels needed more. Wonderful. Yeah, that's a, such important work to bring the science into legislation, into policy. And we we know very well that it's always kind of behind. Uh, but uh, having the opportunity to contribute to that, that's just wonderful. So, yeah. And I guess, you know, for people who don't know how zoo licensing like works, I mean, is there like, do what do you need to, which boxes do you need to check or what do you, why do you need a zoo license? It's a very good question. And not very many countries in the world do have the same system that we have in the UK. Um, and essentially within England, uh, Scotland and Wales, uh, we have this document and the Zoo Licensing Act. Um, And the idea is that, again, it brings uh, all zoos to at least a a standard that's required. It includes contributions to conservation and research and education, um, as well as focusing a lot on animal welfare. Um, And realistically, it's it's to make sure that um, zoo owners um, and I suppose, yeah, providers of looking after animals that are open to the public are safe for the public. Um, So they're places that can be classed as, you know, good 
tourism locations that are means that you're not going to encounter um, dangerous situations and of course really good for the animal welfare as well so the idea is that you know we're increasing the standards provided in UK zoos um, so in a lot of other countries they will have uh, welfare legislation so we've got quite a lot of countries around the world that will have various different levels of, of animal welfare legislation. Some of them will include captive animals, so the zoo animals, uh, and some of them don't really mention zoo animals. So we're one of the only countries in the world that actually has um, a specific zoo legislation um, or zoo licensing act um, that is separate to the Animal Welfare Act. So when do you have to apply for it? Do you have to have so many animals or what are the specifics in the UK? I know some of the specifics here or in the Netherlands, but what is it in the UK? Yeah, so in the UK, generally it's when you're um, dealing with animals that are potentially classed as dangerous. So if they're beyond the domestic species that are generally farmed, you would then have to have some form of license. Um, so that then falls into what's called a dangerous wild animal license. So you're just looking after these animals on your own premises. You're not having visitors to come and pay to see the animals. And it's just you with your wonderful collection of strange and wonderful animals. Um, so you then have to have a specific um, inspection, I suppose, from uh, official uh, DEFRA inspectors to be able to house them. Whereas if you want to then increase your visitation or you want to open to more than six days a year, no idea why it's six days, that's just the way it is, um, then essentially you would then need to upgrade that license to a zoo license. Um, and that means that generally you will have DEFRA, um, so government um, inspectors that will come round once a year uh, for, a, for sort of um, I suppose informal inspections to make sure that you're ticking all of these various different boxes as part of the Secretary of State standards. Um, and then every four years, you'll get a full inspection where you have to make sure that you're putting things in place to, to make changes and so on and so forth. So it is quite a rigorous system. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting being the legislation side of things, certainly being on ZEC, seeing this side, as well as in a past life, seeing being on the zoo side, when you're getting those inspections, it's quite a stressful situation as well. Yeah, so that's very interesting. I, the last time I checked in the Netherlands, it's seven days. Yeah, you wonder, you know, who came up with yeah. those. Right. But yeah, anyway, it's all important. And part of that, of course, um, is about, uh, you know, keeping records and documentation and, and those things are really important. So perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about the EASA's Animal Record Working Group. Yeah, so again, with my roles in, in zoos, um, I was a conservation research manager and I had a lot of um, various different hats and animal record keeping was, was one of these hats. And I would be involved in all of the animal moves and, and you know all of that side of things as well. And I think from working with ZIMS, so the Zoological Information Management System, um, and working with keepers and kind of you know, translating what's in, what's needed to go into the records so that it's viable records um, is, is a really important role. Um, I think the role of records and record keeping is, is massive within zoos. And it's a really great opportunity to be able to share best practice without even really having to do anything extra. So generally on a day-to-day -day basis, your zookeepers will be keeping some form of records or notes on things that have happened, things that have, you know, are a little bit strange about particular individuals, something that's, you know, medication is now finished or whatever it might be. Um, and so it's, the, it's basically the, a group that's kind of 
recognizing the importance of that, uh, of those records and making sure that anything that is kind of compiled that we can put together training to make sure that it's useful um, on the bigger picture of sharing good practice. Um, and I've also obviously published a few papers that have linked with animal records. Um, so I, again, I kind of see all different sides of it in terms of, you know, when you're trying to write the records, when you're inputting them and when you're trying to use them for, for research and how they can fit into that bigger picture. Yes, absolutely. And records, yeah, like you say, can serve so many purposes and and really give insights also and across facilities and collaborations and also has, you know, massive implications for decisions on conservation levels. So, yeah, so that's really wonderful to hear. And, and especially also, I think it makes it such an exciting domain because sometimes records or numbers or just spreadsheets can, you know, make people feel it's really kind of boring and dull. But actually, when you pull these things together or you pull uh, to answer certain questions, it becomes really exciting to, to see them or see it visualized or what it can do, the power it can have. Yeah. Yeah. And I think certainly, you know, when you're looking at a zoo collection, if you've got two individuals and you're monitoring the weight gain of these individuals on a period of time or over a year or however long, they're very isolated. But as soon as you put that in with another 10 different individuals from different zoos, or if you then increase the, the scope to 20 individuals, 30, 40, you can really start to see whether the individuals that you've got are falling into those norm patterns or whether there's something that's not quite right. So it really does help to kind of pick out patterns and, and trends within the data. Yes, absolutely. And I sometimes say jokingly, like if I would be a zoo inspector, uh, then, you know, I would want to see those sorts of long-term data, right? Like it's great on the moment to see an enrichment or see an animal, but it's kind of like how well is this facility doing in promoting, you know, optimal or positive well-being of animals across time, right? And, and records are so key to that. So yeah, that's just wonderful. And so you do a lot of different research projects, and we're going to hear about that in a minute, but uh, you work as a research uh, advisor to Wild Welfare, so perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, people who don't know who Wild Welfare is and, uh, and what your role is with them. Yeah, so Wild Welfare is a charity um, that's based in the UK, but has international reach. Um, and they essentially are set up to try and increase the welfare provisions of zoo animals, um, or an, any animals that I suppose housed in zoos across um, various different, well, across the world, I suppose. Um, so I started a few years ago now, just um, working alongside them, trying to look at, you know, they've got a, a huge amount of data um, with, you know, progression and looking at, um, you know, they get reports about uh, certain zoos that are not providing very well for certain animals. Um, and they then basically will go over and they'll provide uh, training for those particular zoo staff who will then be able to recognize what uh, poor welfare looks like with certain species, be able to put enrichment practices in place to be able to improve the lives. So the idea is, is that we'll take the knowledge that we have in, I suppose, the, the developed world and help to apply it uh, and teach the undeveloped world to be able to provide better care for animals. Um, and certainly within the research component, um, like I say, there was so there's so much data that they were looking at that just they didn't really understand necessarily how it could all pull together and where it could fit and what stories it can tell um, and how they can move things forward. So I started working with them to try and help um, shape their um, 
welfare audit, um, I suppose, document where they go around the zoos and they'll kind of score um, various different, um, you know, healthcare provisions, nutritional provision, husbandry, housing design, those sorts of different aspects. Um, and so we took the information of what they'd already collected um, and we basically re-ran uh, some wonderful statistics to be able to identify um, which areas were kind of common areas to of um, developing countries that, that they sort of, I suppose, fell down upon. And again, it means that we can then use that to help them um, work on those particular areas when they're in training um, and certainly providing education for different areas. Yes, absolutely. And it's such a wonderful way of looking at, you know, different care provisions that and then, you know, potential flags or risks uh, that you can then zone in and see what uh, we could be doing here, whether it's staff training and or changing. Yeah, so that's just really wonderful and research. I think, yeah, the interesting thing is, sorry, sorry just to um, add there, I suppose. I think the interesting thing is, is that generally people assume that it's all linked to money and finances, and it's not always the case, um, you know, or that the staff don't really care or that they don't have enthusiasm for the animals and it's just a you know a low paid job and that's certainly not the case of as to what we've been seeing and you know the the people that work with these animals are just as enthusiastic and really want to do do the best but they don't necessarily have the access to the journal articles for example that are all written in English or majority of them are written in English that you have to have you know various different paywalls or screen walls that to get access so it's things like there is the scientific knowledge out there, but they just don't necessarily have the access to it, which is really important. So again, by having these links where the charity will go in and they'll help to translate it or they'll work with the local associations, uh, the zoo member associations to provide that knowledge, to be able to allow them to be able to train. Um, that's, I think, really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, definitely also my experience in in working around the world that language is a massive barrier and not just, you know, in, in Asia or South America, but also here in Europe, you know, whether mm. it is, um, you know, not, and I think, yeah, like you say, a lot of things are published in English and how do we bridge into other languages and making it available and, uh, and making it available to everybody. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in, you know, the practical animal welfare science platform, we have, uh, lots of accessibility uh, for people who can't afford it. So please do reach out to us if you have any concerns on that, because uh, we want to make it accessible for everybody. So Sam, tell us more about your research. Uh, you already talked a little bit about animal um, and human relationships and kind of defining, you know, interactions, relationships and bonds. You talked about stockmanship. Um, so perhaps you can uh, talk to us a little bit about zoos, labs and agricultural aspects and that sort of connection why it's important or how it's different yeah that's um another i suppose <laughs> one of my soapbox moments um so it's something that i again from working within this sort of agricultural industry and you know knowing that there's so much funding in that particular area it's a, it's something that's that kind of strikes me as a, a big gap i suppose in the fact that there's there's lots of animal welfare science knowledge and funding and expertise within lab knowledge within the lab industry within the agricultural industry and within the zoo industry but they don't necessarily talk to each other 
um, and they don't share those those ex that, those expertise, I suppose. So, for example, there's you know research still going on within the agricultural industry about enrichment and whether it's going to better the animal welfare of you know pigs in in housing. And you're like, hang on a minute, the zoo industry has done so many thousands of papers about various different types of enrichment and how it can be useful and why are they still doing a study as to whether the substrate is a really good idea or not? It, it just blows my mind. So yeah, it's um, I think sharing that um, expertise is really, really key and it just doesn't really happen very much. Um, and same, you know, there's huge amounts of areas that within the zoo welfare research we can learn from, you know, the techniques, the advancements in um, technological work that can be applied into to animal studies and being able to notice, you know, grimaces and things along those lines is, again, really applicable across all animals. It's just making sure that we share the knowledge across the different, you know, the different groups of where we work. And I think that's what's really key. I'll get back down off my box. <laughs> oh, I mean, we love soapboxes. I love soapboxes. I have one of them myself, and one of them is that one. And you know, sometimes people ask me, why is why is practical animal welfare science not just for zoo animals? And I'm like, exactly. You know, you just articulated it exactly why it's not just for zoo, uh, or why don't uh, why doesn't all our content just revolve around it? Because you know, there's so much to learn from each other. Um, and also how, you know, the information that we have from different fields really not only benefit each other, but also really kind of diverge or have to, has to change in the way we approach yeah. things because we are like really, you know, in different fields. So uh, yeah, now I love that soapbox. I could be on it with you. So <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> absolutely. So much to learn there. And um not everybody's in favor of zoos and aquariums. Um, you know, that also extends, you know, to wildlife centers and sanctuaries sometimes. Mm -hmm. Just the idea of animals in human care, captivity, whatever your word is that you want to use. But um, can you talk to us about, you know, what do modern zoos, conservation-minded, welfare-minded zoos do that really make a difference? So I think the, the go-to answer is always the links with the conservation, um, whether that's funding for conservation um, um, sort of in situ or whether it's breeding programs and so on and so forth. Um, but I don't tend to, to kind of focus too much on the conservation side of things because I do think, you know, zoos are more than just conservation centres. Um, I think they really help to connect people to animals and the environments and conservation and you know biodiversity and I think unless you know everyone goes to the zoo as a child and they'll always remember an animal that they've seen or something that's you know um kind of really stood out in their mind about an animal fact or something along those lines and generally you don't meet people and maybe this is a big assumption but generally you don't meet people that don't like animals you know if you can always capture somebody's attention with an animal, um, you know, with, with something, a fact or some really, something really weird and wonderful about a way that an animal is able to do something more so than what we can do it. And I think that is what you really get from zoos. You get the wow factor, you get the amazement, um, and you can really then hopefully get those people to connect um, to wildlife. And that is, I think, the link to conservation and whether we've got this world of people that actually really care and really want to actually do something to to save the planet as we know that we all need to 
Um, I always remember there was when I was working down at Paint and Zoo, uh, there was uh, the Gorilla House, and one of there was uh, quite well known for um, swinging up against the glass. Um, and there was a child who was kind of sat watching these gorilla and, you know, absolutely amazed at just watching them. And then had completely hadn't realised that this gorilla had picked up this massive big rope and was swinging towards the glass. And all of a sudden, boom, it came against the glass. And the child was like, oh, oh, my God. And then was just laughing his head off. And I know for, for, for sure that that child will remember that moment and will have some form of connection to gorillas in its in the rest of its life because of that interaction that it had I mean you know the parents were petrified thinking <laughs> that the gorilla was going to come through the glass but it didn't because of course it was all wonderfully safety glassed um but you know it's those sorts of moments that you just wouldn't get you wouldn't get them in the wild you wouldn't get them anywhere else um and I think that's what the importance of zoos is all about yes absolutely I think Zoos, modern zoos today really have so much to offer in various ways. They're so active in all kinds of different disciplines. And a conservation education, of course, is uh, what you're talking about and uh, very much linking to the planet and to, you know, what is it that you can do in your bubble of influence for urban wildlife in your backyard uh, or anything else that really helps uh, conserve species and places and caring for animals, right? So caring for your pets, uh, linking back to your cats or link it back to the squirrels in the neighborhood. And yeah. so sometimes we, you know, teach animals, train them to participate in various programs that we have. So perhaps can you talk to us about effective ambassador animals, as we often call them, the animals that are connecting with our public? Yeah, I think this is quite a, an interesting one. And at the moment, it's um, I have a few um, students that are working on research topics in this particular area. Um, because again, we we assume that you know these ambassador animals um, that maybe you know certainly over in the states they might be on leads or or in Australia they don't necessarily put big cats on leads in the UK here. Um, well, not that I'm not that I'm aware of, um, but you know there are these sorts of animals that you can go into the enclosures with or you can uh, you know feed them and so on and so forth. So there's the idea that these interactions will help to build these connections. And I think at the moment, there's just not enough research to actually say whether that is the case. Um, there is a lot of discussion uh, as to whether it kind of fuels this um, selfie image that you know, you're know you stood next to an animal and it's not necessarily going to have any sort of conservation benefit or, or anything along those lines. Um, so I think at the moment, it's, it's still um, up in the air in terms of whether it's beneficial for the humans, but also, you know, for the animals as well. And, you know, I know, again, over in Australia, the sort of holding of a koala bear is, is kind of chain, whether you're allowed to do it or not is, is different in different states because they don't really know whether it's actually beneficial for these same reasons. So I think we need a lot more research with regards to these ambassador animal, animals um, as to whether it's connections or whether it's just a, a kind of a easy win with regards to some finances. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's so many, you know, if we would cast the net really wide, there's lots of ambassador animals. I'm making quotation marks, even though you're listening, you can't see that. But <laughs> in the sense of 
we could have photo opportunities and these sources of direct, you know, feeding like you talked about, but also animals that maybe are in uh, touch tanks and all kinds of sorts of interactions and all that sort of messaging is around them being ambassadors for their wild counter. Um, yeah, so there's, a, and you know, indeed, what does it do for people? Uh, are they changing their behavior? Because of course, a lot of the modern zoos are about human behavior change for animals and the planet and also what does it mean for the animals right and I think we have really moved uh, quite far from it's not just the the animal that didn't go well with the other group members that now ends up in the ambassador domain we're really looking personality wise and everything is this the best fit for the animal but we also using things like training uh, to get the animals comfortable you know in whatever role that they have so, and more research, of course, is wonderful. So can you talk to us a little bit about the book that you and your co-authors released on animal learning and training last year? Yeah, so this was a book that um, I joined in a little bit later. I think it was um, the, the the initial idea came from, uh, from Professor Vicky Melfi and her then PhD student, Nicole Dorian. I think it was, it's basically grew and grew and grew into this, monstrous amazing book um, and the idea of it is that it um, ties together both the kind of the practical side of animal training and also the academic side of animal learning um, and these two kind of areas although they seem kind of entwined uh, which they are there there's a lot of misconceptions around uh, you know how to do it correctly and that is it necessarily that you know all species can be trained and and you know the actual learning theory is really important to being able to get right the animal training and unless you're able to connect the two then it becomes very difficult to get right uh, for a variety of different species so the idea was that it would connect this this academic world with the sort of practical world and be this kind of go-to book um, for zoo animal learning and training so it was involving lots of different um, authors. So um, as you know, you were you were one of them. Uh, so uh, you know various different chapters that focus on different components with regards to to learning and training. We then also have a variety of species specific um, boxes, which then focus on you know the kind of practical side of things and also the learning theory side of things for those particular type taxonomic groups. So again, it's it's I suppose this blend. Of, of trying to be a really useful textbook that you can go to for their academic knowledge, but also a really useful kind of practical application book so that you can help you to kind of maybe answer questions that you're struggling with, with regards to training animals. Yes, I really like the book and we'll definitely with this podcast, put a link so that if you're interested in, you know, finding out more about this book, you can easily find it and, and order it. Now, you and I were coming almost to the close of the podcast. We are recording this in November 2021, and we're still in the midst of COVID. And some of your research, uh, together with your collaborators, has revolved around the impacts of COVID uh, in, on animals in zoos and understanding visitor impacts. So perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about that research. Yeah, so this was a project that we sat around when we found out that zoos were closing and went, oh, wouldn't it have been really good to be able to do some research on this? Um, and then we decided that it wasn't too late and that we certainly could. And although we didn't have the current pre 
COVID data, we could collect that because we were sure as uh, and correct in the way that zoos will reopen and we will be able to get back to the way that we were. Um, so yes, we, we started on this rather mammoth task of trying to uh, recruit different zoos that had the staff and the time to be able to contribute, um, which again was a really big ask because again, a lot of staff were uh, furloughed or you know taking having to work in certain groups and bubbles so that they were protecting the animals and the staff that were working with the zoo animals. So it was quite a, a task to be able to collect as much data. Obviously the zoos were closed, so we couldn't go in as researchers to be able to collect the data ourselves. So again, it was about trying to coordinate um, how to, um, I suppose, collect as, mo as robust a data set as we possibly could, knowing that we've got different people at different zoos collecting the information and collecting the data for us. So um, we had to kind of work together quite quickly to be able to, to get uh, the information out there. But we have had a, an amazing response from loads of different zoos all over the world. Um, and we're just about to submit um, for publication our third, I can't remember if it's third or fourth paper now. Yeah, third, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I'm saying third, third because I, I know of two, but you might have yeah. three or four, you know, <laughs> knowing you, there's a ton of publications all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the third one is coming, well, it's being submitted in the next in the next month, we're just finishing it off. So we're just going to tweak the, the final um, author guidelines, as you know, um, and just make sure it's all fitted um, into the correct format. Um, and then that's, that's going to be focused on uh, primates. And we've been able to collect some fecal samples and do some FGM, so fecal glutocorticoid metabolites. Uh, not a great word to say on a, on a podcast, but never mind, I get there. So looking at stress levels as well as to whether it impacts on physiology as well as the behaviours. So that's something that's to watch out for. And then we do have another couple of data sets from zoos that we've not yet. Uh, so aquariums as well is something that we've, we've got coming. So it's still coming out with dribs and drabs. And we've got various different challenges along each paper um, because of the methodological challenges that we had. But um, yeah, it's been a really interesting um, project that was managed by uh, Dr. Ellen Williams, who was at Nottingham Trent with me, but then has, has recently moved across to Harper Adams. So that's been a really interesting kind of project. And I think for me, the interesting thing is that it really has shown that our zoo animals are really versatile and they're really used to dealing with and coping with challenges that we throw at them every single day. So, you know, they they obviously initially, when they first started, you know, with no visitors, some of the animals kind of responded in a way that they were a bit, I suppose, kind of, what the earth is going on? Where has everybody gone? Um, and then they're like, okay, well, you know, this is fine. We just carry on as normal and we still get our food. And, you know, we just don't get this talk at three o'clock in the afternoon with a big speaker. And then again, you know, when they start to open up again and they, they increase the number of visitors, they, you know, maybe initially or some of the species um, initially responded quite quietly, I suppose, and they kind of um, kept themselves out of the way. And then again, you know, within a week or so, they started to habituate again and they were able to tweak and change and, and adapt. Um, so for me, it really shows that what we're doing with our zoo animals is actually really positive. We're allowing them, we're providing environments for them that will show that they're able to, to deal with change which I think is a really big uh, challenge within zoos, making sure that we're keeping them mentally stimulated and, and able to deal with these particular, you know, potentially changing situations. So I think we're doing a good job. Uh, there's always more to do, of course, as we can uh, 
um, always find more research and more questions that need answering and, and better ways of doing things as we learn more about the animals. But I think certainly the research from the from the COVID closures has really demonstrated to me that we are doing what the animals need um, and they're able to adapt and change accordingly. Yes, that's just wonderful. And I think it's also great to hear, you know, this quick, uh, you know, change and let's try and do this and let's, you know, try and deal with, yeah, wouldn't it be great like all, you know, uh, journals have the same author guidelines uh, and oh, yeah. we only need one sort of formatting, wouldn't it be wonderful? Let's <laughs> dreaming about that one. Another box we are going to leave right now. Yes. But, um, but how wonderful, of course, like modern zoos, you know, having lots of places to hide and different opportunities for animals so that they, you know, their environments are, are complex enough for them to be able to shift and do. And like you say, so, and some of the stories, I haven't done the research, but I've spoken to a lot of people and it's just wonderful to hear all the stories of some animals like looking around and trying to check out where are the people and other animals that were almost never visible. They are like, whoop out here and you yeah. know and then and, and and zeus also uh, reacting to that right and saying okay so we need to change some of the ways that these animals have more hiding spaces or different spaces so that they can watch you know the public and the public can see them but they feel more safe uh, so they're more visible so it's it has really in various ways through formal research or informal observations um really allowed for lots of changes so that's that's really exciting so i really look forward to the next uh, paper so we're coming to the end of this podcast and we always like to conclude with an animal story as well you know you started with chickens and and your boat <laughs> and uh, perhaps we're going to hear more about chickens let, let us know um you know a final story please yeah so um Last November, well, yes, actually, almost a year ago, um, well, in fact, a year, just over a year ago now, we I moved to a little small holding farm, um, and our plan is that uh, my husband and I will become self-sufficient um, in our as much produce that we possibly can um, produce, um, and of course, it's now meant that I've gone back to my um, love of of, uh, of various different farm animals. So we do have uh, two current different groups of chickens um, we have uh, a batch of um, bantam chickens which I call my pet chickens um, and from where my home office is I can sit out and look at the window and see them all pottering around and and scrabbling away and we've got a few silkies and some Polish bantams and some Pekin bantams um, and then we've just uh, two days ago had a batch of buff Orpingtons so they're a dual purpose breed so they breed uh, of their big birds first, sort of, I suppose, for meat and as well as, as eggs. And so we've got um, some three-day-old chicks um, cheeping away downstairs in the house uh, in a box at the moment um, that we're currently rearing and getting used to us building up our positive human-animal interactions um, so that the, the layer birds and, and potentially some of the meat birds will be um, a little bit more used to humans um, for when they get to grow big and go outside. <laughs> so back, back started off with farm animals and, and moved back around to farm animals. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it's just, uh, yeah, like you say, like building up positive relationships with them, getting them used to their new home. 
uh, on the farm and uh, getting used to everything. So that's just wonderful. Thanks, Sam, so much for coming onto the podcast, talking about, you know, the university, about your research, about, you know, the importance of records and also the importance of, you know, looking at animal welfare everywhere, wild animals, domesticated uh, and in all regions of the world. So thanks again so much for coming onto the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely talking. Thank you.